Let's talk again about this work of passing the faith from generation to generation. This is what we're watching right here. That next generation who goes out to Sunday school, thank you to our teachers there. And so, Lord, guide us as we gather around the scriptures, the teaching of Jesus. May we have ears to hear, and may we have eyes to see. May we have hearts that understand. And Lord, as we go from this place, may we be different. In the best sense of that, may we be different people because we have heard the Savior's words and and been in his presence. And so guide us now, we pray. Amen. Uh, After my mother died in uh, the spring of 2021... The work began of sorting through all the personal effects, the personal items. It is no small task. My father had died uh, some uh, almost 10 years earlier, and some of you know this, uh, this work. Um, we discovered many a gem hidden in piles and files and boxes and bags, and so... Some early gems said, we can't just throw stuff out. We better pay attention here. There were two lock boxes. One of them had the combination, and we knew the combination, and we opened it, and it had all kinds of important papers and records. There was another lock box that required a key that could not be located. And like a kid on Christmas morning, I'm shaking it. Is there anything in here? Okay, there is something in here. I like this. Eventually came across a Ziploc bag full. I'm try- I don't know if I could even illustrate. Full of keys. <laughs> every key mom and dad probably ever owned for every house, every um, piece of luggage, whatever. It was kind of fun, and Eureka, we found the key. And so the moment of truth arrives. What treasure is behind a lockbox that has a key that can't be found? Certainly it's hidden treasure, right? Thinking a million-dollar bill, maybe some early shares of Apple or AT&T or something like that. We open the box. One lone picture and some folded papers. A picture of Dan Quayle and a speech he gave autographed by Dan Quayle. Those of you who know my mother know how fitting that is, right? Our family inheritance. I tell the story not to dishonor my mother. May her memory be blessed and eternal. And those of you who know Jackie Meeks know what a wonderful woman. But I tell the story to talk about our inheritance, our legacy. What inheritance, what legacy will we leave to the next generation? Now, for three weeks, we have been 
sharing this theme from generation to generation. I invited you that first Sunday in January to join me in the window seat, in the airplane, and let's get that 30,000 foot view of our faith. God's long plan of redemption, his promise to Abraham that is being fulfilled still. And then we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6, the, the call to have God's word be pressed upon our hearts and then to impress them upon the children. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one and love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then last week, looking at that, that leadership transition from Moses to Joshua. That God is faithful from generation to generation to raise up the men and the women to lead his people. Today, I want to ask the question, what legacy of faith will you leave behind? What spiritual inheritance will we leave to the next generation? So to get at this, I want to read a parable of Jesus. It's the parable of the wineskins, interestingly. So if you haven't turned there, page 1602, Luke chapter 5 Verses 33 to 39. And so the heading here says, Jesus is questioned about fasting. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the, old, and from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No. New wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Hmm. What is he getting at? Let's set the context. These are the early days, the earliest days of Jesus' public ministry. Luke, as we know, we just read this a little over a month ago. Luke is the one who who does extended recording around the birth of Jesus. His conception and birth and the the early days, as it were. But just before we read here, Jesus has gone to his hometown. And he's gone into synagogue, as his custom was. He was faithful. And he read the... He read the scroll. He read from Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is now on me to proclaim good news. And then he steps back and says, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And let's just say the people didn't cheer wildly. They were up in arms. 
Who is this guy? To suggest that he is the living fulfillment of the prophetic messianic vision. He sets about healing and casting out demons, and he chooses Sabbath days to do it. Again, they are not excited about this. Who is he that breaks the Sabbath in this way? We would have just read about a paralytic that would have been carried by some friends to a house where Jesus was teaching. And the friends let that one through the roof. The construction then was different than construction now. And so this paralytic is let down by his friends so that he could be healed. And, and so he, he, he pronounces the healing. And, but, but then he also pronounces that he is forgiven. And again, there is coughing and sputtering because by now, some of the religious establishment, the local pastors, if we could say it that way, are showing up. Who is this character? Who is he to say that your sins are forgiven? God alone can forgive sins. And so there is quite a stir that is going on by the time we get to this point. Now, he's also uh, set about uh, gathering a circle of friends, followers. We we know them ultimately, eventually, as the disciples or, or, or the 12 apostles. There's a couple sets of brothers who are ordinary fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John... And then there is a tax collector named Levi. We know him in other places as Matthew. And Matthew is one, or Levi is one, who, who runs with a loose crowd, riffraff. The phrase tax collectors and what? Sinners. And so Jesus invites Matthew to follow. And Matthew throws a party. With all of his rowdy friends. And Jesus is right there enjoying himself and the company. Just an aside. Jesus gladly will eat with anyone who will eat with him. It's an important important point there. And so let me, in fact I'm just going to read a couple verses just before our passage. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. We can put others in air quotes there, right? But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So that's what's gone on and what's been going on just before we read this thing about the wineskins and the patch. Everyone's trying to figure this guy out. And we lose touch with the reality of that in Scripture. Not that we have Jesus all figured out. Let's not pretend that but we're familiar with the stories of Jesus right 
We, we get it. We get who he is. He's the Messiah. He fulfills and, and all of this. We know the miracles and, and we know um, the teachings. And we know what happens on the cross and the resurrection. And we know those things. But guess who doesn't know them yet? All the people right here that we're reading about. Who is this guy? And so they're trying to figure him out. And and we have lost touch with the shock that it is when Jesus begins his public ministry. With the pronouncements of forgiveness, with the healings and the casting out of demons. And then with enigmatic messages like this. And so we've got a, I got a short little video. Let me, let me set this up. So some of you would know the, it's a video series, The Chosen. Have, have you been following The Chosen? Okay. The rest of you could go watch it now after this. This is, this is just one little vignette that, that it kind of captures this story here. And so the audio is not the best. So we've asked to turn the, or we got the captions on. And so this is just a couple minutes where it's the same passage. But let's, let's see something here. You know, Rabbi, I haven't mean to ask you about fasting. Thing I am very on? happy not to be doing right now. John required us to fast at regular intervals. He said the sacrifice of fasting is integral to any serious commitment to God. And yet, you've never once asked any of us to fast. Oh, there was the time on Shabbat where we ate the head of grain, but we were just hungry. That wasn't intentional fasting. What are you getting at? Well, the Pharisees fast all the time. Make a big scene out of it. Disfiguring their faces. If it's such a big deal to them, and they find out we don't do it, I don't know, don't you think they could possibly weaponize that against us? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days are coming, the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. Taken away? Hold that thought. When you fasted before, what did you pray for? Your arrival. Right, so what would be the point now? Exactly. Eden. Do you have any wine fermenting right at the moment? Uh, yes, in the back room. Little James, can you please take down that empty wineskin? Sure. Ooh, I feel a lesson coming. <laughs> Eden, when you last checked on the wine, what was it doing? What it always does at this stage. Um, sort of bubbling, popping out little plumes of air now and then. James, how does that wineskin feel? Uh... Stiff, not very flexible. So if Eden were to put her new wine into that container, what would happen? I don't know. The old leather can't stretch anymore. The new wine would keep expanding and it would explode. And so new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. It's 
I'll be the first one to admit that. I don't, <laughs> don't get it. The ways of the kingdom I am bringing into this world will not fit into old containers or frameworks. hope that sets a little hook for you could just go out just google chosen and you can watch all the episodes do you see it he's saying things and they're like i don't get it the ways of the kingdom i am bringing into this world will not fit into old containers and frameworks. Greg, thank you for tipping me off to this this week. The ways of the kingdom I am bringing, says Jesus. Now, this is one interpretation. Those words are not in the Bible, okay? That, that's the dramatic, that's the poetic license that Dallas Jenkins, who, who wrote The Chosen, uh, is expressing. But what does it mean to pour new wine into new wineskins? The ways of the kingdom I am bringing into this world will not fit into old containers and frameworks. I think these words, though not authoritative like scripture, I think they point us in a helpful direction. What what does Jesus mean? What is he driving at with this parable? He shows up. They're trying to figure him out. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He's forgiving sins. He is teaching. And people are flocking to him. And the religious elite and the religious establishment and the common people don't know what to do with all this. But we're really comfortable with Jesus. We've got him figured out, right? I mean, we know how the game works. You go to church, you sing some songs, you give some money, you send the kids to Sunday school, you go home and you live your life. But maybe this radical call of new wine into new wineskins and the caution around putting it into old wineskins is perhaps still... For us. The image and language of the new wine is suggestive in at least two ways. It recalls Torah, it recalls the law of Moses. There's language in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy of the new wine that God will grant when they get into the land of promise. It's a sign of God's favor and the covenant. A blessing upon them. The prophets, Amos talks about the mountains dripping with new wine. The psalms, the psalmist, in the same psalm that we sang this morning about um, uh, let the glory of the Lord endure, earlier in that psalm says, God has given wine to gladden the heart of man. Do I hear an amen from this congregation? <laughs> and so the new wine is suggestive of fulfillment of law and prophets that some Jesus is doing something and and we do remember what was Jesus first miracle anybody turning what into what 
water into wine, John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. And so there's a suggestion of fulfillment, messianic fulfillment, covenantal blessing. But at another more basic level, the, the language of new wine suggests joy, celebration, the gathering of the people. And so this is, can the, can the uh, friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? When you're at the wedding reception, who fasts at a wedding reception? No, you enjoy. And so there's joy and there's celebration. And I think an important word, freedom. Please hear the caveat. Alcohol and its abuse is real. And so please don't hear me as encouraging something that can be harmful for many. But the reality is that wine lifts our hearts. And sometimes loosens our lips and drops some of the inhibitions and we feel free to say what we are really thinking, to maybe stretch ourselves to do something that we might not do before. There's a freedom that is present. And so life and laughter and love and celebration is suggestive of this picture. And so Jesus has come to bring this. He has come to bring freedom. He's come to bring life. He's come to bring joy. And to liberate us from not only our sins, yes it is that, but all the patterns of life that we engage in with others because of our sin. That we become so habituated to ways of living with one another. And so it is not a coincidence that his first miracle is at a wedding turning water to wine. It is not a coincidence that it is a meal with a cup that he lifts up and that cup would have been filled with wine and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And so that language of new wine is suggestive of this new relationship with God, new relationship with one another, this new life, this new birth, this new thing that God is doing that brings freedom and joy to our lives. And what Jesus is saying in the parable is this new life won't fit into old ways, old categories, old frameworks. Now, Jesus clearly has the Pharisees and the religious elites in mind who had over the centuries come to a place of influence such that they were able to use God and use Torah, use the scriptures, and then the traditions of the elders that they set the traditions, right? They were able to use God as a mask for their love of power and money and status and influence. And we see that conflict with the Pharisees throughout the Gospels. They used God also as a cover for condescension of others. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I haven't come to call the healthy. You don't think you have a need? Okay. And so clearly Jesus has that in mind, the frameworks and categories of the Pharisees. But we would be mistaken to think that the old wineskins aren't still laying around our churches and our houses. 
What legacy, what spiritual inheritance are we leaving for the next generation? Are we going to leave a legacy of new wine? Of freedom, of joy, of celebration, of life in Christ? Are we going to leave a legacy of new wineskins and an understanding that every generation is going to have to find the new wineskins, the, the ways of containing this life of Jesus in their own way? <clears throat> I was listening to a book this week about the challenges facing the conservative evangelical churches in America. And my ears perked up when I heard these words. The next generation of would-be believers. Rewind. The next generation of would-be believers is watching us. I think I like that, but I'm not sure. Right? The next generation of would-be believers is watching us. They want to know if we love Jesus first. If we love Jesus more than money. If we love Jesus more than social status. If we love Jesus more than a political party. Ouch. If we love Jesus more than country. Double ouch. The author goes on and says, if Christians want to win souls for Jesus, then they can start by showing grace to those who don't deserve it, by showing kindness to the culture around them. And we know the culture is not necessarily friendly to such a faith. First Peter, we read, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. That's a new wineskin that does not use God, does not use Scripture, does not use Jesus, does not use this life of faith as a cover for power and, and, and love of money and, and influence or condescension. I think the new wineskin that we must learn to embrace that carries this new wine of Jesus, this gospel, is of a faith that is vital, that is real, that is living, that is, that is willing to engage with others and be curious, is, is willing to be wronged and spoken against, is willing to be misunderstood. And, and it's a faith that doesn't retaliate, it doesn't judge, it doesn't condescend because the next generation of would-be believers is watching us. And we must be careful that we don't, like Pharisees of old, use Jesus or the kingdom or God or Scripture as a front or a cover for all kinds of hidden agendas like personal gain and partisan advocacy or or control or tribal and ideological purity. And friends, this falls on both sides of the ideological aisle. Conservatives and progressives alike, I think, wrestle with this. Because the next generation is watching. And are they watching us show unconditional love, unconditional kindness and respect? Are they watching us embody truth with grace? And are they 
seeing in us a willingness like Jesus to suffer some wrong and, and being misunderstood and not lash out over that? And are they seeing in us a sacrificial love, a patient endurance? As James said, a, a, a willingness to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. And so, I think as we reflect on the call from generation to generation, what are they seeing in us and what spiritual legacy and inheritance will we offer? Amen. Lord, hear our prayer. As we seek to live with integrity and humility, grace and truth, help us to do this this day and forevermore. Amen. Let's stand and sing.